You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. We are a film criticism show brought to you by myself, Thomas Cordwell, along with Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard, and our regular guest host now, Alexandra Helen-Nicholas. Welcome all. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. It's good to be back. It is good to be back. You were away last week, Josh. You were, you were, you were lynching in Brisbane with me. Yes, I was uh, in the air, not on the air, unfortunately. You're nice. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the air is on fire, as Lynch would say. Now, on tonight's show, we're going to take a look at a film called Love is Strange. It's a drama set in contemporary New York about an older couple who find they can no longer afford to live together. And one of them happens to be an artist, which ties in nicely to our middle film, Big Eyes. This is the new one by Tim Burton. It's based on the life of Margaret Keane, who throughout the 1950s and 1960s had to endure having her husband take credit for her paintings. And now that it's been released on Home Entertainment... We finally caught up with Finding Vivian Mayer, a documentary about the until recently unknown American street photographer who was uh, mostly prolific in the 1950s and 1960s. So sort of a loose art theme on tonight's edition of Plato's Cave. Let's start with Love is Strange. Cerise. Yeah, it sure is, Thomas. Amen to that. But um, enough about me. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Ira Sachs' new film, director, co-writer, producer Ira Sachs, whose previous film, Keep the Lights On, I was actually quite fond of, uh, which is an interesting film. Uh, again, like this one, very much uh, concerning queer life in New York City. And uh, But that one was, I would say, a rather more interesting film than this one, especially as it had a little bit of an archaeological aspect to it with respect to film history and, and, uh, and a little bit of a, a real endeavour to reality of you know, the, the Berlin Film Festival featured within it and the Teddy Awards, the, the, film, the awards for best queer film uh, featured within. This is a film which I suppose is still quite indexed to a certain sort of reality, the New York City, not, not exactly the high life but uh, most of the folks in this seem to come from a fairly privileged lot in life. The two protagonists, John Lithgow and Alfred Molina, Ben and George respectively, are a couple who have already enjoyed 28 years of a connubial bliss only without the marriage, our new marriage laws have recently come into effect and they're going to take advantage of them and enjoy a pleasant wedding with all their nearest and dearest in the East Village. It's all very groovy in a slightly sort of old-fashioned sort of way. But post-honeymoon, things come a bit unstuck for Ben and George. Uh, On account of their vows having become public, George is fired as a choir director for a Catholic school in spite of the fact he's given many years of long service, is known to the families of all of their children and is generally respected and very, very capable. This is a bit disastrous. The couple have no real savings. I would attribute some of this problem to Ben's being a painter and, uh, as we learn, uh, not hugely successful one at that and that's something that he is grappling with in his slightly old age he's 71 i believe in this film uh the fact that he might never quite make it as a great painter but that's really just a subplot much of it concerns ben and george's troubles um as they are split up um each having to take um uh, lodgings in uh, not ideal circumstances with friends and family though it's pretty clear as is the case of a lot of queer society friends more or less are family but uh it, it's difficult the the gay cops next door to their old apartment sort of party on a bit um as cops perhaps are wont to do 
and Ben is stuck with his nephew's family, which is all well and good, except that there's a little bit of marital uh, strife there, and a son who is possibly coming a bit off the rails, possibly not. And just uh, it's just awkwardness all round. And of course, these two who've already spent so much time together. Uh, it's it's just a strain, and it's not played for laughs as this might have been, and I almost might have hoped it have been because it's really rather a dry film. Uh, the most important, uh, most interesting thing to me in this film is something that is rather awkward for us to speak about. It's a particular narrative development that is treated in an interesting way. It's a it's a, it's a narrative event that is common to many films, especially dramas. Um, and it's very frustrating not to be able to speak about this, really, because I don't want to spoil this film for anyone, but I kind of admire the way this film handled a very significant event um, just through it having happened very matter-of-factly and a, a scene immediately following um, the previous, not uh, just a, a gently un, uh, releasing the, the facts in a sort of a drip-fed sort of way until it hammers home the reality of something rather sad. But beyond that, this is uh, it's a nice film... Um, but it's gee, it's a bit tough to really dig deep into this and find anything really to sink our teeth into. Uh, I can matter-of-factly applaud its um, multiracial casting and the fact that it presents New York City is what I imagine New York City largely is. It's full of people from everywhere, and um, you know. But otherwise, you know, some of these characters—they're they're all full of self-importance. They're a bit verbose. They don't speak entirely naturalistically. Um, but really, look, I'm struggling to come up with too much else. <laughs> That's actually really, you know, someone, someone help me out. That key scene you mentioned, which yeah, we, yeah, we, we really can't talk about. It wouldn't be fair. Uh, really is the best thing about this film the, the sort of the way it resolves I suppose in the, in the last 15 minutes that for me really pulled me into into the film and sort of uh, made me in, in, enjoy the rest of the film in hindsight maybe more than I did at the time of watching this film I found it a little dry myself I, yeah. I, and, and I, I kind of understood what the film was doing it just didn't quite work I mean you, you've got it didn't work for me anyway that's, that's not fair to say it didn't work full stop you've got these wonderful characters played by wonderful actors you know John Lithgow and Alfred Molina have really beautiful chemistry like you do believe that these guys have been you know a, a, a couple for, for many decades like they're really affectionate I love their banter I love their intimacy. And for most of the film, we don't get them on screen together. And that's because the point of the film is that they have to be separated by circumstance and live in different uh, parts of, of New York City. And, and I suppose that's what the film's about. It's sort of a post-GFC film. It's looking at what's happened to the American middle class and how the American middle class is slowly fading away. I mean, if you wanted to be really flippant, and goodness knows I never do that, you could dismiss this as a first-world problems film. But I, I, I don't like saying that, but I, that, that is something I can imagine people who would say because these are people from a, a place of, I suppose, privilege who are now doing it tough. But I think that is the point. The middle class is fading to the extent that you know, one person loses their job and they can no longer afford to live together in the same apartment in New York City. And they can't find anybody who has enough space to accommodate a couple. They have to sort of be billeted out to different places. Um, otherwise, you know, they get the option of staying with somebody who lives two hours away. And, you know, and that's sort of... Yeah, the, the the sort of more mundane tragedy that runs throughout this film. So I appreciated what it was doing, but... um. I guess I just wanted to see these two wonderful characters have more screen time. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, I think, in the sense that it's um, quite high-profile actors like Alfred Molina and John Lithgow uh, in roles like this is ideologically important. Mm. You know, not not wanting to be kind of cynical about it, but, um, you know, they have, an, as you said, they have an interesting energy. Even if you put the class... Uh, politics and the queer politics aside, I think it's a it's a pretty solid film about the subjectivity of ageing with dignity and being in love and ageing and being in love. Um, that being said, this is pretty much one of those kind of films that comes pre-critiqued. I think it has something like 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. Not that that, you know, means much, but that's a kind of gauge to how, how warmly this film has been embraced and how deeply that excluded me from... Uh, my experience excluded me from that kind of response to this film. I'm very much a, you know, this. I'm very much a kind of car crashes and explosions and um, chainsaws and Lovecraftian and sex beast kind of movie girl. None of those things are in this film. This is a capital A acting film. It's full of acting, full of people, full of voices, full of acting. It's all acting all the time. And I can't watch a film with Alfred Molina and not get Del the Funky Homo Sapiens Mr. Bobolina stuck in my head. <laughs> I'm the wrong audience for this film. <laughs> Whoa. Don't make me sing it. What's the pop culture reference I'm missing on that one? Mr. Molina, Mr. Alfred Molina. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I just spent Alfred uh, valuable airtime doing a very, very bad Del the Funky Homo Sapien. <laughs> I'm going to sing that every time I rewatch yeah. Boogie Nights and end every other one. Mr. Alfred Molina. <laughs> That's so good. I'll be singing it for days now. Thank you. Um, look, I had a similar response to you in, in many ways, Alex, um, in terms of this film. I didn't really connect with it. And, and quite different from Thomas and Cerise in, in the sense that the, the scene that we're not going to talk about on the <laughs> event and the way it was handled didn't work with me at all like no, in fact no, me neither. it was a for me it was a kind of a, a glaring misstep in a series of glaring missteps towards the the end of the film um, and it felt like what we got was a series of plot contrivances that felt really dishonest and really disingenuous like the the kind of the the one deus ex machina after another like there, there happens to be a, a dinner party guest who happens to have this part of information who meets this person and and look what the result of that is and there was a series of those and i found that I found that undercut a lot of the good work that had been built up in the first act, particularly the tenderness and the relationship between Lithgow and Molina. I, th- I mean, it's it's quite obvious that they're the two... I guess the two draw cards of this film, like their performances are strong. There's a wonderful sense of tenderness that's established early on. And for me, the, the political hook that I thought the film was going to explore, and it's not the film's fault that it didn't, but it was the hypocrisy of homosexual acceptance in a, in a middle-class society when we have that scene because the film opens with them getting wedding and rushing to their wedding and then we have um, a Marissa Tomei stands up and gives a speech at their wedding and it's all about her and it's all about that, that seeing their love was, was the catalyst for me and my husband to get married and what a wonderful thing that's been and she completely almost ignores the fact that she's at someone else's wedding and then when one of them is forced to move in with, with her family and we see the other side and we see that maybe they're not so accepting about homosexual relationships and maybe they don't have the kind of love that was on show in the public arena early on but that seems to disappear the film's not doesn't mm. seem to be really interested in that and i thought that was something that the film seems to be leading towards in a, in a number of threads like the fact that he's fired from a catholic school and proclaims his his um undying affection for jesus christ and that he's a religious man again this is something that is is uh, open to the audience and then dismissed equally and there's so many plot threads in this film that aren't taken up 
or um, explored fully. We, we hear him write a letter to the parents of, of the children, and that happens, and then nothing's happened. There's a, an incident, I'm not going to go through all the plot points, but there's an incident involving uh, Marissa Tomei's son in the film, in t- which he's stolen these French books, potentially. And again, it's a kind of, it's, it's a plot contrivance which goes nowhere, and they became increasingly uh, frustrating for me, to the point where at the end of the film, I, I felt like it was an unfinished work. I felt like, I'm not sure what we're supposed to take away from this apart from two very genuine performances in, in the two leads. Well, I kept on assuming there was some point to that, but I, I struggled to find out what it was, that it did really seem to make a, a point of saying this is an idea we are planting that we're then not going to follow through on. I, you know, not to mention the very core conceit, which is by them finally being allowed to marry, this is what causes the chain of events that kind of ruins their lives, this horrible, cruel irony. And I guess I was waiting for the film to make more of a statement about that i mean i guess in a very general way it was the same what you are saying there josh is that perhaps their relationship wasn't really as accepted as people um you know when people are sort of standing in the distance looking inwards they they politely applauded and accepted but when these guys genuinely needed help and needed somewhere to stay they weren't given the same warmth and the idea of them actually staying together wasn't really taken seriously by anybody yeah i mean i found that quite cold actually the fact that none of their friends would find a way of letting these two men stay together. Again, I, I think that's that's the point. But I, I found it a, a sort of frustrating viewing experience as a result. I think just and just just finally, and this is probably me at my most cynical, the the very end of the film, which switches the focus from the the two lead characters to the son character for, for me and this is just one way potentially of reading it that uses a narrative or a story that's about a homosexual couple as a catalyst for a heterosexual coming of age love story Definitely. and that i find really insidious mm. and offensive yeah that is problematic isn't it um, i had very big issues with that as well yeah, that um, uh, the, the struggles of a homosexual couple to finally be taken seriously institutionally actually does lead to their undoing and um, a victory for homonormativity, uh, heteronormativity rather. Home, well, look, you all of your normativities. Um, you're all problematic. I have no time for any of them. Damn it. It's all abnormal. Yeah, uh, the end. <laughs> Problematic normativity. That's another band that we can develop on a Plato Cave. This is going to be a recurring theme, I suspect. Uh, you are listening to Plato's Cave. We're going to be talking uh, about Tim Burton's new film, Big Eyes, in just a moment. Three, triple, ah. Tim Burton's Big Eyes. As Thomas, you mentioned at the top of the show, this is about a real-life artist, Margaret Keane, played here by Amy Adams, who was big in the 50s and 60s, but not for herself, but because her work, her portraiture of young children, particularly young girls, distinguished by their feature of having big eyes, hence the title. And her artworks were taken credit for by her husband at the time, her second husband, Walter Keane, played here by Christoph Waltz. I think it's worth saying that this is a really fascinating story. This is a story that is quite serious. It's about ideas and issues that we explore in this show, from gender, authenticity, identity, the role of the artist, and so on. And I guess there's a, a link to Tim Burton's work in the typical protagonist who sort of a product of an unforgiving social environment, often, and we see that's a kind of a trope of particularly his early work. But for me, this film feels far more in the realm of a 
a movie of the week biopic than it does a Tim Burton film. Even in contrast to what I've described as Tim Burton's failures of late, with the exception of Frankenweenie, and that is the excessive incoherence and, and histrionics of the Johnny Depp films like you know, Dark Shadows and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Alice in Wonderland and so on. This feels bland for the most part, and it has no right being that. And I, I think uh, Amy Adams is, is reasonable. I think Christoph Waltz is being turned up way past 11 here. He's almost auditioning for the role of the Joker in an upcoming Batman film. Look, there's so many aspects here, but I guess my overriding frustration with the film, apart from the blandness, is either Tim Burton or the scriptwriters seem unwilling to explore any of the the key serious aspects that I think this story raises. Obviously, gender, um, her imprisonment at the hands of her husband, the separation from her her daughter, the question that's raised about mental illness, and, and is this a product of her imprisonment, or is this just something that's in the artist's mind to explain her fascination with with large eyes Um, or or even one of the key things and probably my favourite scene in the entire film is actually the opening credits where we see copy after copy of of a print of her artwork you know being processed through a machine and that is and here we go we're going to tap back in with some Benjamin the the role of the artist in an age of mechanical reproduction and this to me feels like a very Bertonian theme you know the machine and the artist and how they, they correlate and again this is almost completely ignored in, in this film. Look, I've got other issues that I think are worth taking up, but that I think is a cross-section of frustration to begin with. I think with Burton, I mean, you either, you're either Team Burton or you're not, and I'm very much not, to be honest. Um, I, I find that he's a little bit Emperor Wears No Clothes for me. Um, on obvious points, this is not a very Tim Burton film. There's no Johnny Depp, there's no Helena Bonham Carter, there's no Curly Fences. But I guess more thematically, it's, as you say, there, is, there are really key... Burton-esque themes in this movie. It's um, for me. It's very much got that fairy tale imagination, um, very kind of drunk, on a kind of nostalgia fetishism that for me really marks his films, both uh, in their in their stories, but also in their aesthetics. Now, this is normally fine if you like Tim Burton. I think that really appeals to you. If you don't like him, it doesn't appeal to you. My concerns here is that this is a biopic. These are real things that happen to a real person, which draws a really immediate parallel for me with Ed Wood, which is my favourite Burton film. Now, the thing with Ed Wood, and I think it's interesting, this film was orig- it was written, and I believe it was originally going to be directed by the two guys that wrote Ed Wood. So Burton came in, I believe, to Big Eyes at the end and took over as director. I believe that that's the case. I'm sorry that I can't... I don't it's have certainly the same guys who wrote Edward. Yeah, wrote it this. is. Yeah. And I believe that Tim, yeah. like, they were originally pegged to direct this film. Huh. And that was when Reese Witherspoon and Ryan Reynolds were in... I believe so. I believe so. Yeah. The thing with Edward that makes it different from Big Eyes, however, for me at least, is that that kind of fantastic imaginary was part of Edward's imagination that, that Burton beautifully and, and Depp really beautifully captured the manic glee of the person that was the real Edward. And I think that's really beautiful. I think it is what makes it such a strong film. Um, it really fails here. I think that Amy Adams is great, um, but I think that she's got a hard task. She's trying to bring gravity to a role that really doesn't want to have any attached to it. Christoph Waltz, I, I found very... I felt that he was a big-eye character. He was like a moustache-twirling villain tying the innocent girl to the train tracks kind of melodrama. It just was absurd to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I felt that the, the quirk was very misplaced in this film and I found it quite worrying um, in that it's, it's ambivalence to the lived experience and the, the quite traumatic horror that this woman endured is kind of reduced to this cutesy, quirky kind of 
pop art. And I, I also think that it's quite ambivalent about her art. It doesn't really engage with distinctions about high art and low art. It's, it's quite patronising to the work itself, which you see in a scene in a supermarket where she hallucinates. She's quite traumatised and she looks around her and everybody's got big eyes. <laughs> I'm somebody who's very much on Tim Burton. Like, I unashamedly love him. I get very defensive. I'm a big fan. Although these days, I think I feel like I'm more an apologist where I'm just desperately saying, no, he's still good. Really, he is. Give him another chance. Look what happened with Frank and Wendy. That was fantastic. He's still got it in him. Um, I think this is possibly my most disappointing Burton film to date. Not because it crashes and burns. It's overambitious and silly, like some of his other films, which I still find... Look, I, I, I like dark, dark Shadows. There are aspects of Alice in Wonderland and Willy Wonka I don't mind. I think Planet of the Apes is the only film of his I really dislike. But this one commits the scene of being utterly bland. It really does feel like a midday movie. I mean, Danny Elfman's score is so painfully generic. It's really tedious pacing. It's just that hurry to the next scene, no matter how implausible the segue type development. It's real Hallmark stuff. And it's it's boring soap opera dialogue. Um, and I'm going to, yeah, uh, the only thing really burdenesque I found about this was some of the production design reminded me a little bit of some scenes maybe in Big Fish and, and the Batman films. I did like the look of this film, but even then it was very familiar. We've got, you know, uh, the, 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 the California middle class suburb she's escaping from from we've seen so many times in a Burton film, and then she goes to bright, vibrant San Francisco. Uh, but look, again, in terms of the, the main issues you both have raised, um, gender and its attitude towards the reproduction of art, the film doesn't really know what it's doing, and it's really, really frustrating. I, I might just talk about some of the... Um, well, you know, her, her role as the artist first. This could have been a great Bluebeard story. I mean, Definitely. This could That's have been what a, I thought too. Yeah, and you've even got some images of her sort of locked away in the attic. Like, she's not physically locked there but she's emotionally abused very gothic very gothic very really gothic isn't it and Mm. i think amy adams actually does a fantastic job despite the material and christopher waltz is acting in a different film totally and where where the film really made me angry was right at the very very end where we have a long sequence where it looked like they were going to start taking her emotional abuse seriously and there were a few moments where she really pours out her heart about what she has suffered and it's it's quite moving and then Christopher Waltz come in, comes in and it's, you know, Burton's as much to blame for this as anybody and pantomimes it up. They turn the end into a farce. It's played for laughs when we finally might get to the core of this woman's emotional abuse and it horribly betrays the subject matter. Um... I found it re- really upsetting. And, yeah, and, and it didn't know what it was trying to say about the idea of mass-produced art. I mean, it's sort of, on the one hand, it seemed to be saying this is automatically a bad thing and then it was sort of admiring the ingenuity of it. It was sort of comparing what she was doing to what Warhol was doing. It, the film didn't know what it was trying to say. Most interestingly, there's a scene with Terence Stamp as an art critic who articulates a position that I found seem to be very pro the role of the critic in calling out artists who have stopped pursuing their own vision and who have instead resorted to kitsch and pandering to the masses. <laughs> now, this just sounds like exactly what Burton's been accused of for the past decade and a bit. So I don't know why this, this scene was so blatantly put in the film. Is it some kind of admission, or is Burton saying, no, I'm not guilty of this and I can prove it by showing you this scene where I look at somebody else who is guilty of this? I, yeah, I it's love Tim Burton, but I'm, I'm I'm going to have Sorry. to yeah, do a bit of eternal sunshine and, and erase this film from my mind, I think. It's interesting that you mentioned Terence Stamp because mm. to, to kind of lift the tone, I guess, so that we don't finish on a, on a downer, I did really like the support cast in this film. I thought Terence Stamp was great 
and he played that kind of pantomime evil villain art critic that refused to accept her role. It was a pantomime character mm. and it was meant to be. And I also really, really like Danny Houston. Yeah, I, I love Danny Houston. He's like sexual kryptonite. I would watch anything with him. Yeah, in I'm it. with you and I like, I, I, like, I like DH. But um, I was, <laughs> again, I was frustrated with how the character was used. Like, I don't know why Very he became the narrator of the film to tell us times were tough for women in the 50s. Like, we did not need that guy and you didn't need a guy telling you that when we're seeing it on the screen. I also thought, yeah, Jason Schwartzman was wasted doing pretentious modern art, gallery owner 101 type acting. Like All those jokes about modern art being out of touch and aloof was just so obvious and trite. And you could throw in there the Rita character, the supposed best friend, Deanne, who has two scenes, or the two actors we see play her daughter in her, in her youth and then a sort of later adolescence. The entire supporting cast is under, underutilised, and, and it is like that checklist of themes that I read off, kind of unexplored territory. The film lacks daring of, of, of any kind, even on a visual level, and this is probably the most disappointing from a, a fan of Tim Burton's earlier work and still someone who admires his aesthetic or Mm. the potential of his aesthetic is that you've got a film which is ostensibly about art and and the role of the artist and there's no differentiation the entire film maintains the same kind of color palette at the end that it it has at the beginning it doesn't play with darkness it doesn't change over the course of the film so you've got a character who we're supposed to believe has undergone serious psychological trauma but the world around her has remained the same and i don't think he's actually making a point by doing that i think it's just another element of the production of this film that that people have paid complete lip service to it and i think you're right thomas this is despite um, some of those other films I mentioned earlier, this is probably the most disappointing Burton because it lacks any daring. I mean, at least you could make a case that Dark Shadows, as batshit crazy as it is, at least had some fun. It was at least trying something. Yeah. It doesn't quite work necessarily. You know, ambitious failures, whatever you want to call them. But this just feels completely unambitious. And for the story, for the cast, for the reasons that we've, we've talked about, that's what I think left me feeling so frustrated about this. Yeah, disappointing all around in the cave for big eyes. You are listening to Plato's cave here on three triple r three triple You're listening to Plato's Cave here with Thomas, Alex, Josh and Cerise. We're now going to turn our attention to the recent home entertainment release of the documentary Finding Vivian Mayer. Alex. Finding Vivian Mayer is co-directed, produced, written by Charlie Siskel and John Maloof. And there's pretty much two lines of investigation or two lines of critical entry into this film. One of them is about Mayer herself, uh, a remarkable woman. Um, I, I think it would be difficult to argue that point. She was a nanny, an American nanny, who Emily, Dickens, Emily Dickinson style uh, died without anybody really knowing what an incredibly talented and prolific artist that she was. Uh, She died in 2009 just as a a huge archive of just the most remarkable street photography uh, stretching back to the 40s, in particular 40s and 50s in Chicago. Just beautiful, beautiful work and so much of it. Um, The discovery of this material has launched uh, books, exhibitions and two separate documentary films. Now, one of those documentaries is, of course, Finding Vivian Mayer, which we're talking about tonight and which provides our second line of of entry, I guess, uh, into how to approach this, is how it it functions as a documentary. Um, The film follows John Maloof, the the co 
director, writer, etc. Uh, and his experience of discovering the Mayer material um, and his attempt to kind of champion her publicly to get her recognised by the art world and when that failed uh, to seek alternatives, uh, kind of giving her, getting her work seen. So having he's, he's published books, there's been independent art exhibitions and, of course, making this documentary, which is littered with people uh, praising Mayer's work. People, uh, Tim Roth, I think, is probably the most notable figure that, that sings the praises of, of this remarkable street photographer. So there's very much two stories intersecting here. One of them is about Mayer and one of them is about Maloof. Now, for me, Mayer is an, an incredibly rich subject for a documentary film. She's a remarkably interesting woman, a remarkably talented woman, and there is something about this, her the fact that she died before she, her work was really known that I find just so revealing and so fascinating in particularly today you know when when you sort of look at the the, the sort of slaughterhouse of self-promotion that is social media that somebody could just quietly for decades and decades and decades be just accruing this incredible work and having it just going quite literally rotting in a in a storage shed somewhere is is incredible uh, that being said, for me, I had a lot of problems with the documentary aspects of this film. Um, I think it's best described, I've heard this described as a post-Kickstarter film, which I think is just, it's harsh and mean and perfect. Um, Maloof's constant me, me, me-isms, his attempt to make it his story, I found straight-out offensive um, at times and, and at its best just gr- just grating. You know, he really prides himself as being this champion of the underdog, but he ends up being a little bit more P.T. Barnum for my liking. I'm very uncomfortable with it. Um, there's a really hypocritical tone to his prying. At one point, he says something like, you know, what? there's a voiceover. What could be driving me to learn more about this amazing woman? And it's like, my dude, this documentary will make $2.2 million at the box office. You've done exhibitions, books. I think I've got a guess at what might be driving you. Call me crazy, but I think I've got an idea. And it's it's kind of offensive. I mean, ultimately, Vivian Mayer is remarkable, and this film is incredible to watch just to find out about her. Maloof is not Errol Morris uh, by any stretch. You know, where is he when we need him? Um, there's a big chunk in the second half of this film where he, he, he's, uh, Maloof's muckraking skills, I think, really take centre stage and he really lets go of an interest in the art and really focuses on Maya's dark side as a nanny. And I, I just found it a deeply, deeply uncomfortable viewing. Um, I, I, I think it's actually a really good fit with Big Eyes, and that they're really ultimately two films about women being ex- women artists being exploited by men. Yeah, his motivations definitely seem very impure. Uh, he does spend about half the film creating this mythology around this mysterious woman who left, uh, not to posterity, but just to pure chance. Uh, this. Uh, of discovery, uh, a vast treasure trove of extraordinary photographic material, and we are very lucky to see quite a lot of it throughout the film. However, uh, equally then, he spends a lot of energy demythologizing her. Um, for all of his championing her work and asking why is it not in museums and, and, and posing challenges to the supposed hypocrisy of the, uh, the, the galleries and museums of the world, he then does indeed go on a muckraking expedition. Um, as well, as well as, I mean, not just the warts and all stuff to do with her, um, you know, the, the, I suppose the softer side of her of things, her mental illness uh, manifesting as hoarding. And she didn't only uh, accumulate a vast array of photographic material, but also hoarded newspapers, just piled them and piled them such that apparently floorboards caved in underneath them. Um, 
But the, uh, the, the darker side of uh, her mental illness and, and acts of seeming cruelty towards children and, uh, I mean, you know, some of the uh, children, now adults interviewed in this film, uh, seem gamely able to laugh about it, but they actually, one or two of them seem fairly damaged to me as well and that was quite uncomfortable viewing. I, I did wonder if some of those interviews weren't a touch exploitative uh, in their own right. Um, one uh, a connection that I, I really formed with this film, though, and the, the profile of the photographer, uh, another recent documentary about a photographer and an eccentric about one living was uh, Bill Cunningham in New York, who s- seemed to lead a similar sort of life, uh, an, a- an asexual life, a life uh, of very mm, crowded personal space where just uh, materials were hoarded and um, very little consideration seemed to be given to other aspects of, of life. And, you know, the difference there is that Bill Cunningham seemed a very willing accomplice in that film, save possibly for one very uncomfortable scene at the, it, its close. But I, I was intrigued by that. Uh, I mean, you can't help but be intrigued by the, the collision of artistic... Uh, I hesitate to say genius, because that word is bandied about all too easily, but she was definitely extremely talented, had an extraordinary eye. But that collision of, of let's say, perhaps genius and, and illness uh, always... Um, well, uh, so often conflated in fiction as as in non-fiction here. Yeah, I had a very similar response to both of you to this film. And I'm hesitant about even referring to her mental illness because if you look at it on the face of the documentary, the people who are diagnosing it are the director and the person who's trying to kind of beef up, beef up her profile, John Maloof, and some people he records off the street who saw her sitting on a park bench. I found the way in which this film in, in the last act becomes a, a tabloid, an act of tabloid journalism really troubling in, in the same way that I thought the, that dreadful Salinger documentary we looked at a couple of years ago was oh, nothing yeah. more than a TMZ commercial, really. But I am a little bit torn on the one hand because I was so conscious about the fact that this is a woman who clearly, for her own reasons, which we'll never know, kept to herself and and her work to herself and that we were getting a glimpse to work which, at least potentially, she didn't want the world to see. But on the other hand, the work is remarkable in itself and there is is such an immediacy, such a direct gaze in the work which reminded me instantly of Diane Arbus and, in fact, the documentary actually mentions a kind of correlation. And, And in the early parts of the documentary where we're getting to see the work and even though there's not enough of them we see some art historians and commentators talking about the, the social significance of the work in terms of Chicago in terms of the, the types of subjects in terms of what actually makes these interesting and worthy photographs they were the moments where I felt the documentary was at its strongest but like both of you you know particularly what you were saying Alex in terms of the, the self-promotion I felt incredibly uncomfortable you know sick at, at points and the, 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 while I guess you could say well at least he mentions at points that you know i'm doing this and i realize by doing this documentary that i'm going to elevate the the value of the work you know you could say well that's fine he's at least bringing it um bringing that point to attention but then he completely dismisses it and refused to explore or interrogate the the implications of that and then later provides the most specious justification like he finds an invoice where she'd asked a printer in europe to print large-scale postcards of her work and saying this this is proof proof undeniable that she did want her work in the public sphere therefore everything i'm doing is therefore justified and i thought oh come off it really i found the fact that he kept banging on about the ethics it was almost a little bit the lady doth protest too much i mean i I found him smug and disingenuous 
and and the more that he kept going on about it and the more that he kind of tried to defend himself, the more uncomfortable I got and the more I questioned his motives. It's interesting to watch, as you guys have pointed out as well, that uh, she's a remarkable woman, so she's absolutely the perfect material for a documentary, just not maybe this documentary by this particular guy. Um, the BBC Imagine series in 2013 did a documentary, it's online I think in full, called Vivian Mayer, Who Took Nanny's Pictures?, um, and that's that's a really interesting point of comparison with this film because it's obviously dealing with the same subject but approaching it uh, from a little slightly more... It's not Errol Morris, but it's a little more objective. Yeah, there's a bit that's phony and quite cynical about this uh, opening with a scene of uh, at an auction as if it were the auction where he got that huge trove, that initial trove of um, photographic material. And just these odd shots as, as we start to go into those spooky attics in which she lived where doors just mysteriously open themselves. And, you know, that's it's corny and phony and just kind of creepy, frankly. So, yeah, I... Um, there was quite a lot about this that just gave me the willies. It, I was joking about Kickstarter, but for me, you know, I mean, with Tim Roth and Phil Donahue of all people makes an appearance, they felt like Kickstarter testimonials. Completely. And there, the fact you mentioned before that this is a perfect companion piece to, to Big Eyes, and it is. In fact, I saw this just before I saw Big Eyes, and there's a line when Walter Keane, it's the tipping point in the film where he decides to, to, to take credit for Margaret's work, and he says, Ah, honey, I just want to share them with the world. Would you rather have your children locked up in a closet or hanging in someone's living room? It's like, oh, my God, he's the same guy. He's the guy who directed the Vivian Meyer film. We may have to explore this more on another show, but I reckon one of my, my pet hates that's been developing over recent times in terms of documentaries are documentary filmmakers who put themselves into the film when they don't need to be there. And it's happening more and more and more. And, you know, for some people there's a point to it and it really works, but it's becoming too much of the norm. Very frustrating. You've been listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. Tonight we talked about Love is Strange. That's on limited release through Rialto Distribution. Big Eyes is on limited release through Roadshow Films. And Finding Vivian Mayer is available on DVD, Blu-ray and video on-demand services, thanks to Vendetta Films. On next week's show, we're going to take a look. We're going to start looking at classics again. Classics <laughs> being re-released on DVD. Films that we know we're going to get excited about. The joy about. in your voice. Oh, I love looking at yeah, these great films that we we sort of miss and we get a chance to, to finally visit them and talk about them at length because they get these re-releases. Oh, so we're with you. We're with you. We are, yeah. <laughs> we're going to look at Le Grande Illusion, uh, Jean Renoir's uh, very famous and highly acclaimed World War I drama. In terms of recent cinema, we're going to look at the Northern Ireland Troubles drama at 71 and then Leviathan, which is hard-hitting, award-prize-winning Russian cinema, which I know you're a huge fan of, Cerise, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing Leviathan. it. Leviathan, yeah, like yeah, it. Yeah, looking forward to that. Next week's show should be a great one. My name's Thomas Caldwell. I've been with Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard, and Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. Good evening. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.